From Square Two, this is What's Wrong With Revenue. I'm Mike Lieberman, CEO at Square Two, and along with my longtime friend, Eric Kalis, and co-founder at Square Two and six-time entrepreneur, Eric and I will answer the question CEOs have every single day, what's wrong with revenue? You can be part of the Livecast show where we'll answer your questions every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern, or catch the show on demand on YouTube and on all your favorite podcast networks. Also check out all our audio and video content on Square2 Plus at the square2marketing.com website. Enjoy the show. Okay, Eric, welcome to episode two. Can't you, hear Mike. you. There, there you I, go. It's a little delay now. I loved episode number one. We had a lively chat and we really want to thank all the participants for chipping in as well. Yeah, that's a good point. You brought that up. So before we get into it, everybody, welcome to episode two of What's Wrong with Revenue. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, no alignment between marketing sales and customer service. So um, I also want to as we've done here at Square Two quite frequently, I wanna bring people a little bit behind the curtain and talk uh, a little bit about what the experience has been after our first show, after our first episode. So after the show is over, Eric came in and we chatted a little bit about what, what we liked, what we didn't like about it and a couple of improvements to make. And I think that was important in and of itself because uh, you know, all of these marketing tactics, including the one we're talking about here, requires constant improvement, constant iteration, and regular upgrades. I was also a little hard on myself with regard to how the first show went. And upon reflection, no one has a good first show. So if you're going to consider doing something like that, keep this in mind. And uh, really, uh, uh, make sure that you're okay with what that first show looks like. It's probably not going to be great uh, and be okay with that. I also started reflecting about some people that I enjoy the content that they produce. You know, Howard Stern constantly talks about how bad his first show was. And if you've seen his, his movie, it was horrible. He, he was horrible and he, he readily admits it. And uh, that made me feel a lot better about our first show. And I, look, I did get a lot of nice notes from people who said, I heard your show. I thought it was great. Keep, keep going. And that also helped a lot. Uh, and I wanted to just share that with, with everybody. I also think the show, look, Eric and I are planners. We, we like to come to these shows prepared. And I think upon reflection, the show is a little, you know, uh, stuffy, a little, a little uptight. So I'm hoping that this show will be a little more casual and maybe a little more conversational. And while Eric and I do have a plan for today's show, I'm hoping that maybe it's uh, as we get a little better at this, it'll become a little more, a little lighter in terms of what we're trying to accomplish here and still share a lot of information with you guys. Uh, anything you want to add, Eric? No, it's a good summary. Mike, try not to drool so much on the end of the microphone. Right. Well, that's funny. I was noticing when I was watching it back, I kept looking up and I kept looking up. I kept looking up. I kept looking up. You guys don't know it, but where I'm sitting, there are these windows at the top of the office. And, you know, I guess just naturally they keep pulling my eye to them. They are, they are, they are a source of light. And uh, 
I'm going to do a much better job talking to all of you and looking at all of you as opposed to uh, drifting off as I stare out into the wilderness uh, in this next show here. So without any further ado, let's get into what's wrong with revenue. We have a good show planned for you. I want to make sure we get to it. We are taking questions. And again, back to the what could we have done better? We've collected a couple of questions from some people who are attending, who submitted questions in advance. We are going to be publishing a, a form on the What's Wrong With Revenue page at the Squared 2 website where you can submit questions in advance. A couple of people emailed us some questions. So we have some questions that we will be dealing with today. But again, as we mentioned last week, if you want to submit questions live during the show, please feel free to use the Q&A button at the bottom, submit your questions, and Eric and I will try to get to them. So today, we want to talk about alignment. And when it comes to revenue, I think a lot of CEOs are really clear that sales has a big, is a big contributor to revenue. Obviously, that, I think that goes without saying. Some CEOs feel that marketing also has a fairly significant role in contributing to revenue. And customer service seems to be, in our, our experience, really the, the third, far, far to the third, when in fact they have an equal role in generating revenue for the company. So we're gonna talk about all three today. And we're also gonna talk about how to get them aligned because and one of our first topics today is the customers don't really care about your internal departments. Your prospects don't care whether they're dealing with assets that marketing created or on your website or talking to sales. And the customers certainly don't care whether they're talking to a rep or a, a sales rep or a customer service rep. They all just want a great experience. So Eric, maybe you could just share a little bit of some of your experiences talking to prospects and working with companies in creating that seamless experience that runs from the very first time they hear about your company all the way through to the, the, the experience they have when they are actually a customer. And then we'll, we'll go from there. That sounds great. So, you know, Mike, I talk to literally hundreds of companies every quarter, whether it be through a speaking engagement live or through discovery calls where people want to have a free consultation or talk to us about doing business. So the data points that I get are pretty valid and pretty fresh and relevant because they're recent. I think the root of the problem goes back to leadership. It even goes back further to leadership. It goes back to the people that train the leadership people, whether it be the first job out of college or you know, working in your family's business, is that the perception is, is that there are three silos. We have our marketing people, we have our sales people, and we have our customer service people. Now, there's different um, forms of all of those. Lots of times, salespeople are hunters and farmers, meaning that they act in the customer service role and they uh, bring on new clients. Marketing people are sometimes involved as sales engineers or sales coordinators to support the sales team, so they bridge both of those. But for the most part, people view them as three separate buckets. When you have three separate buckets, now everybody could be a bit territorial, right? Well, this is the marketing department. This is what we do over here. But yet the sales team needs our support. Well, that's what we're doing. And that's just not right. You're right. The customer journey is um, 
identified by standing in the shoes of the prospect and asking yourself, well, what do they want to get out of the process? If you start with three separate groups, then they're probably going to have three segments of one journey as opposed to one easy, frictionless journey going through the process. So I think the biggest thing is that leadership has to change their mindset from being sales, marketing, and customer service to the revenue team. And I don't have to tell you this, Mike, because it was a big component of our second book, Fire Your Sales Team Today, which talked about the revenue department. Now, Fire Your Sales Team Today is not any, about anybody getting fired. It's about understanding that there's a dramatic shift in buyer behavior, and people don't need the old salesperson anymore who says, hey, what can I do to put you into a Chevy today? People don't want to be sold. In fact, statistics show that 10 to 50% of people that come to your website are ready to buy. But 85 to 90% of people that come to your company's website are looking for information. They're trying to educate themselves. They're trying to answer some questions they have about a purchase they want to make. And that's where the role is not what can I do to sell you something, but what can I do to help you on your journey? In Fire Your Sales Team today, we talk about changing the name of salespeople to sales guides. And Mike, one of your favorite examples is the Sherpa, the uh, very, very conscientious helper that helps you get to the top of the mountain. Well, it's a great analogy with salespeople. They're supposed to guide people through the buying process, answering questions, addressing concerns, telling them what goes on as far as next steps so that they have a really great experience. Now, when I go back to leadership and I talk about how they uh, view sales, marketing, and customer service, it also has to do a lot with budget numbers. Typically, in North America, we find that 75% of the sales and marketing budget goes to sales, and a meager 25% goes to the marketing team to support the sales. But because of this dramatic shift in buyer behavior, even emphasized more now because of COVID and salespeople can't get out, meet people, take them to lunch, play golf, meet them at a trade show, our recommendation is to flip-flop that equation. How do you get 75% of your sales and marketing budget to generate qualified leads so that now your sales team doesn't have to prospect banging on doors and beating the bushes? They simply have to sift through opportunities that are coming in through your marketing, select the ones that'll be the best opportunity or the best fit for the company, and then guide those people through it, which will obviously result in a higher close rate. Unless leadership starts one, thinking that way, and two, acting that way, your company is going to be left behind. Does that make sense? I think, yeah, that's, that, that's such good advice and so practical. It, it almost makes too much sense. Uh, I actually found a couple of data points as I was kind of doing my thing today uh, that I'll share with everybody. So this is from Salesforce, and this is pretty recent data. 43% of people ditch brands that don't personalize the customer experience. So, you know, obviously that's speaking to marketers and how they are leveraging personalization in terms of the website visit and the email that follows and the personalization of content that's offered to prospects. But I think it also rolls into the sales experience as well in that sales reps have to be able to take that data that was collected while a prospect was interacting with marketing assets and use that data to create a personalized sales experience. Let me model that a little bit for everybody. If I know that someone came to the Square Two website and they were looking around at website stuff like the websites that we built or our website services page, maybe they spent a little time on the SEO page, 
I want our sales team to know that. So when they sit down with the prospect and they start talking to them about it, they start the conversation with, I noticed you were spending a lot of time on our, on our website page and on our SEO page. Is that some areas where you feel like you might need some help? That's an example of personalizing the sales experience. I also then want the sales experience to follow up with content that continues to give them information around those areas that they feel particularly pained about, like in this case, websites and, and, and search engine optimization. It's a big difference between starting the conversation with, so uh, what, what do you got going on? What can I help you with? Which we've all had that sales conversation and it's pretty demoralizing, certainly not interesting. And it really doesn't get us off uh, on, on the right foot with, with that sales experience. The next data point is 60% of people don't mind paying more for a better customer experience. And that's from OmniConvert. That's, that's huge. That's basically saying that if you provide a good experience to your customers and your prospects, they will pay more for your products and services. So again, when we're trying to optimize revenue and you wanna get full value for what you do, creating a more aligned experience is gonna allow you to get full value for your products and services. And last, 52% of customers in 2020 expect offers to always be personalized. That's from eMarketer. So again, if we're gonna go, we probably could talk about customer service here too, but if we go back to marketing, you gotta make sure that what you're offering them uh, from a nurture and connect perspective is personalized. But on the customer service side, which obviously we don't talk about enough, you gotta make sure that those offers are personalized. Hey, I saw that you purchased product A, did you know that product C goes beautifully with product A? And because you bought product A, I can give you a little better deal on product C. Would you like me to help, you know, help you with that transaction. I think this idea of a seamless experience from marketing through sales to customer service has to be something that CEOs are thinking about if they want to optimize revenue. Now, Eric, we talked, we had an interesting conversation today with a prospect who was very tuned in to their marketing, a lot less tuned in to their sales, and was open about some challenges they had with relation to leadership. You want to talk about that a little bit? Because I think it's a real life story that I'd like to bring to our, our, our audience here. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing on that call, Mike, knowing that this episode was coming up and alignment was the issue. I was like, uh oh, here's some content we could use. So this person was sharp. You would agree, Mike. She was sharp, yes. had all of her numbers. Exactly. Website visitors, conversion rate, MQL to SQL, SQL. Yes. And then it dropped off the cliff. Right. And the reason being is that she wasn't privy to the information in the sales department. And what we mean by that is that Mike asked her very simply, what's your close rate? Out of every 10 people you pitch, how many end up doing business with you? And she could not provide an answer. Now, she knew it was low because obviously people are complaining. We need more revenue. We need more revenue, which is the whole point of our uh, video cast today. But the um, uh, wall that was put up between sales and marketing preventing, prevented her from having the clear vision of what would it be like to stand in the shoes of the prospect from the first time they heard about the company all the way through the first closing of the, the closing of the first deal. And then how can we cross sell then upsell them? We agreed to start this example that she was sharp and she could have lent her skills to the sales department to support them through sales enablement and work with the customer service people to create offers and interesting things that would continue the conversation about how much more can we sell this prospect. 
or the other way, how much more can we help the prospect buy more of our stuff? Now, that's a challenge, right? So the CEOs that are listening today, they have to think about it as one continuous stream, right? And all they have to do is put themselves in their own shoes when they made a purchase. Back to your conversation about, I'm more than happy to pay more, right? Think about the experience of going to the Toyota dealership versus going to the Lexus dealership, right? In the Lexus dealership, I pull up, there's valet parking for me. I get inside, I have an espresso waiting for me. And I'm willing to pay $50,000 for a car that if it had a Toyota brand on it would be $32,000. Remember, the engine's the same, the suspension's the same, the tires are the same, but the branding and some of the uh, uh, other accoutrement on the car are slightly different. And they're willing to pay for that the same way that the person at Lexus who designed the buying experience in the showroom thought about what is it going to feel like from the time I pull up to valet until the time my car is three years old. Let's make every little touch point along the way obvious and then let's work to make that seamless. Now, yesterday I gave a presentation to a 30 person uh, sales department and the sales department uh, was there. And then the one person from the marketing department was there. And the salespeople were saying things like, man, if I had a case study for this industry, I could really close more deals. So I said, well, what does marketing say about that? And they thought, oh, I never thought to ask marketing if they could create a case study. So then I said, well, tell me about your case studies you have now. Oh, well, I did them in Word. So now the beautiful marketing and all the graphics and interactivity and a nice website experience, when that got thrown over the wall to sales, now they were getting a Word document, which I'm sure had some grammatical errors and a few typos because the sales guys aren't as careful from a QA perspective as marketing is. And now people are like, wait a minute, this isn't the experience I had on the website. Let me stop and think about that. That friction that they put in by not working together could have scuttled multiple deals and they didn't even know that that was happening for that specific reason. And that's why standing in the shoes and, and really uh, uh, plotting that journey and what you could do to make it not only uh, interesting, frictionless, but remarkable, we'll talk about that in another episode, is all CEOs have to apply effort towards. Don't you think, Mike? Yeah, that's such good advice and great, great stories. I, I really like sharing our practical stories with, with the uh, audience here. So we'll continue to do that. Um, I want to make a quick point. And then I want to get to some questions because we have questions and I want th these shows to be interactive. But I, I want to uh, share with the audience um, a couple of concepts that we use pretty regularly with clients that I think help bring some of this uh, to life and in, in a way in which people can relate to. So uh, there are two concepts, really. The first is how people buy, and that is everybody buys the same way. It's, it's not an, a personal thing. It's not an individual thing. It's the way the human brain works. And basically we all make purchase decisions emotionally first and then rationalize them second, okay? And if you think about things that you've bought, it'll probably feel like that to you. Uh, you, you wanna buy a piece of furniture, you roll into the furniture store, assuming you're not doing it online. And you look at that sofa, the first thing you say is, wow, I love that sofa. It looks great. Uh, I could see that in my living room, the football games and the parties and all my friends are gonna think these are so, this is such a beautiful sofa. Those are all emotional responses. And then you quickly downshift into rationalization mode, which is, okay, well, I like it. My, you know, my, my partner likes it, that's great, but 
you know, can I afford it? How big is it? Is it going to fit in my space? Does the color match my carpet? What, what, how am I going to get it? Do they offer free shipping? You know, when can I get it? You know, what, what's the delivery time? Everything is back ordered these days. Like those are all rationalization questions. And the same thing is happening with the products and services you're selling. I don't care what you sell. I don't care how much it costs. Your, your prospects are all going through those same rationalization, uh, emotional, and then rationalization conversations in their head. The other piece, so you need to know that, and we need to get connected with them emotionally and then make sure we can satisfy their rationalization questions. And this is a marketing and a sales exercise. It's a customer service exercise too, but it's a little bit secondary at that point because, and I'll explain it to you in a second. The other piece of this, the other concept here that is worth mentioning is in order for someone to say yes to your company, they have to feel safe. And again, this is not an individual thing. This is a human thing. The part of our brains that control whether someone buys something or not is the same part of our brains that control fight or flight. So if they feel safe, and we can break that down into three pieces, they have to know, they have to like, and they have to trust you. If they know, like, and trust you, there's a pretty good chance they're gonna feel safe. And your marketing and sales and customer service exercises, the touch points that Eric mentioned, have to be strategically designed to help your prospects feel safe, to help them get to know you, to help them like you, and to help them trust you. Now, your website typically does a pretty good job of helping them get to know you because it has a lot of information about who you are and what you do and how you do it. It might help them like you if there's some elements of that that you've you strategically installed. Like we have a a lot of information about the people that work here. And it's one of the more popular pages on our website because people want to see, well, who might I be working with? Oh, Mike looks like a nice guy. Eric looks like a nice guy. Some of the other people, you know, you get the idea, right? A lot of people have charity work that they do and core values that also helps people get to know you and like you. Trust is very hard to do from a marketing perspective. No one trusts marketers. No one trusts the information on your website. So sales often is tasked with getting your prospect to trust you, which is why we encourage this concept of guiding somebody and educating them and helping them and taking that as your position as opposed to trying to sell them something or convince them to do something or persuade them to buy what you're trying to sell them. It's a whole different perspective that checks more boxes in the human psyche. So I, I want you to understand that as we're starting to look at where, why this alignment is so important. If your company is not aligned across the three departments, it's gonna be very hard to produce no like and trust. It's going to be very hard to get people to, to, to feel safe and to make that emotional connection with you. So keep that in mind. Let's, let's answer a question. Again, I really want questions to be part of our program here. So I'm gonna read the question, Eric, you can take the answer. Okay. We're, we're a mid-sized insurance agency with producers who are only partially motivated to pursue new business. How would I, as the marketing manager, go about getting them on board with a digital go-to-market strategy that aligns marketing and sales? So you know where we're going with this, Eric, right? Insurance agents have a book of business. The renewals drive their compensation pretty dramatically. So a lot of them aren't super motivated to sell new. So what, what would you suggest to this listener of ours? Yeah, it's a great question. And you're right. When insurance agents become mature in their careers, they live off their existing book of business and they play golf a lot. We, we totally understand that. And we, we wish them the best. 
But as the owner of the insurance agency, I got to squeeze more revenue out of those producers. How do I do that? Well, the first thing is you got to work on buy-in. One of the largest challenges that folks have with salespeople is getting their buy-in on corporate direction. Now, this is critical because the um, uh, goals and objectives of the salesperson is different than the goals and objectives of the business. So we have to figure out a way to bring them in. If I, and I assume this is a marketing person answering, uh, asking this question because they want to support the salespeople. It is. They're the marketing manager. Yes, you're correct. So if, so if I'm the marketing manager, the first thing I'm doing is I'm including the salespeople in my conversations. Hey, guys, can we get together on Thursday from 12 to 1245? I want to show you some of the marketing things that I'm working on so that I could get your input. So number one, if they're co-creating the marketing and sales is being listened to, immediately that's a first step to buy it. Because if I'm participated in something, I'm more apt to utilize it. So that's number one. Number two is I would say, what, uh, as the marketing person, hey, sales folks, what are the obstacles that you have to closing new business? Well, you know, it takes a lot of time and I got to like go out and meet someone and you know what, I have to like go back and forth answering questions and so forth. Okay, let's capture all of that. Using the last one, going back and forth answering questions, hey, sales team, give me the 10 most frequently asked questions and let me put together some marketing materials that answers that that you could use in the sales process. That'll eliminate your time to answer those questions, shorten the sales cycle and get you to your commission check faster. Now, when I'm the marketing person and I'm taking that approach of let me help you drive more business, get more commissions, how could they not value me as a valuable member of the team? So once again, I'm now trying to produce things that take away some of the challenges or obstacles they have. And then, and here's a big one, I would talk to leadership. They have to compensate salespeople for the activities that they want to be achieved because we all know that salespeople, their behavior is driven by dollars and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But I would provide much larger commissions, at least in the first year, on people that land new accounts than I would on renewals. So now I'm like, all right, well, I'm getting 5% on my renewals, but I'm getting 12.5% on my new ones. All right, maybe I can carve out a couple of extra hours a week to work on prospecting, right? Because I know that I'll make more money if I land those deals. Forget about the lifetime value of the customer. Now I'm focused on this year. I'm going to really kill it by landing 20 new clients. So I think there's three things that that marketing manager could focus on. I know the last one's a little tough by getting leadership to change the compensation plans of all the salespeople, but it would be a long way to get them to participate in hunting and not so much farming. Yeah, those are all really good uh, options. Uh, a couple of, uh, like to your last point, yes, compensation can be challenging in terms of getting, you know, a, a, a pretty ingrained comp plan to be changed. Maybe they could just add an extra kicker for new business. So, you know, instead of, you know, changing something that everyone's comfortable with, let's just add a little something extra for people who are uh, helping with new business and closing new business, you know, as a way to motivate them. The other option that I think you could consider, and we've done this with some of our clients before, is you don't have to try to make all of the big changes all at once. And especially when you're talking about changing the behavior of sales people or changing behavior of customer service people, sometimes it makes sense just to pick a few of them and run a pilot. And I'm sure, you know, as the marketing manager, if you said to your, you know, 10 producers at the insurance company, like, hey, I'm thinking about 
doing some things a little differently, would any of you be interested in participating in a pilot? I'm sure you get a couple of hands that would fly up. And you know, these are the people that are motivated to, to do things a little differently, try some new things, you know, maybe work a little bit more diligently in the CRM, uh, you know, respond uh, to, to the leads that you're generating for the company in a timely way. They would understand the experience that you're trying to create from marketing the sales to you know, the customer service department. And my, look, I have a lot of experience working with sales. A lot of my career prior to Square Two was the marketing person that was closely aligned with sales. And I've noticed that when salespeople see something cool going on in one area of their department that they are not part of, and it's successful, and those people are getting accolades, and they're making more money, the first thing they want to do is be part of that program. Hey, what's going on over there? How come I'm not included in that? Why didn't you ask me to be part of the pilot? I'd love to be part of the pilot. What do I have to do? I'll do it. So I think that's a, a, a really controllable, manageable way to move an organization when change management can be difficult to start with something small and manageable. Awesome, so hopefully you uh, got something out of that question. Let's talk a little bit about how a seamless and remarkable prospect and customer experience actually drives revenue. Because it might make sense to a lot of us conceptually, yes, you need to give the prospect a good experience, yes, you need to take care of the customers, but how, how mathematically, how quantitatively does this seamless process help drive revenue. And Eric, I know you talk a lot about the compounding effect. And I know we talk to prospects and clients a lot about the revenue cycle that does connect some of the metrics in marketing to the metrics in sales and ultimately to the metrics in, in um, customer service. So how would you how would you talk about that? What, how does that compounding effect work? How does a better experience produce more revenue for the company? Well, couple of quick ones, right? Number one, you're looking at sales cycle length, right? How long does it take from the first time that we meet someone until the time it closes? Many, many companies complain about how long it takes to close a client. And that's because they're not doing a good job of driving value, storytelling, and the variety of things that happen in sales. So there's one metric that would be the big one. The second one would be uh, net promoter score, right? Hey, we just simply poll people at the end after their purchase. How was your experience working with XYZ company, right? We wanna manage that to see how likely they are to refer their friends and family, because that's a big indicator. Um, back to friends and family, if I have a great experience, I become a goodwill ambassador for this company, which means now I'm telling everybody about the great experience that I had. And because of that, I should see my attribution from referrals going up as the experience gets better. And that's a metric that I could easily track. So there's three quick ones, how you could quantify a better experience. I would say that a fourth one might be website traffic, but it's a leading indicator, not a quantification of that. As people hear about it, I'll never forget the first time that someone told me about Warby Parker. I wear glasses. The, the buying of glasses prior to Warby Parker was painful and super expensive. Someone told me about it, how for $95, I can get really good frames. They sent them right to my house. All I have to do is upload my prescription. Well, if I heard about that, my first move is going to be to check out their website. So website traffic as a function of buzz driving people to check out something new is also that, but it's such a leading indicator. It's not quite as solid as uh, sales cycle days, things like that. But there's at least four that we could quantify right away to see that a seamless and frictionless sales process actually drives money. 
Yeah, and I, I think also the idea that when you do get more people to your website and they do convert more frequently and they are a better quality lead and the sales team gets the benefit of those better quality leads, you get more sales opportunities and they should close at a higher clip and they should buy more. And to your point, Eric, they should close faster. And when they're customers, they should keep referring you and keep buying more. And, and the whole cycle spins faster. You, 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 the the um, audience may be familiar with HubSpot's flywheel. That basically shows that there are three areas that need to spin quickly to drive revenue, marketing, sales, and customer service. The cyclonic buyer journey that we created have those three elements in the outside cycle as well. The faster that cycle spins, the more revenue the company is going to generate. You know, to Eric's point about the sales cycle, just to pick one metric here, if your sales cycle was six months, then you're going to do a certain amount of business in a year. But if you're able to take that sales cycle to four months, it's going to allow you to do a significantly, a significantly more amount of business in the year. So the ability to get people to know, like, and trust you and feel safe and close faster can have a significant impact on revenue. And that's obviously primarily driven by the experience they get in marketing, the experience they get in sales, and the experience they get in customer service. Well, we all know the old adage, Mike, that it's so much easier to sell something to someone who's already bought from you. So let's right. not forget customer service. If I have a great experience, I'm like, oh, I love the shirt that I bought online. Oh, I, let's see what else they have. You know what? Now I'm going to buy some pants because I trust this company and I had a great experience. It's as simple as that. Now, instead of a average ticket of $169, I've taken that customer in their first year to $283, right? And right. it's just as easy as that. You know, and a lot of people don't want to put in the effort of what we're talking about here, but it literally comes back to you with a direct return on investment by making a better buyer's journey. Yeah, I don't know why companies don't do that frequently, right? Like, uh, Eric, you bought this shirt from us two days ago. Do you know that these pants would go great with it? Like, I'm constantly buying things online these days. I'm a big sucker for Instagram ads. Please, with a dark web, please don't listen. <laughs> Stop listening to that. I don't want ads for men's clothing, but I, you know, I'm con I, I do get emails from the company, but they're basically just general emails sending me to the store for new arrivals and things like that. I don't know why they don't send me something that's directly related to the purchase that I just made. Like, wouldn't it be great to have pants that match my shirt or a shirt that matches my pants or socks that match my pants or a jacket that matches my shirt? Like I'm not the snappiest dresser, at least that's what my wife says. And a little bit of extra personalization in the experience would, would really connect me to the brand for sure. And you can do this and you could take that same philosophy and apply it to really almost any business. Well, let me give you a quick example, Mike. We both had a situation recently because of COVID. We did not have too many events to go to where we needed a suit. When both of us got invited to things, now that COVID is perhaps uh, lightening a bit, we both realized we needed a suit. My wife said, have you heard about the groomsman suit? I'm like, what the heck is that? In Philadelphia, six colors to choose from, a couple of different styles. You go in, 200 bucks, you get the top and the bottom, they ship it right to your house. 
I went through it. I told you about it. And literally the reason I'm bringing that up is because we have a common friend, Len, who just texted me and it came up on my screen, love the experience at the groomsman suit. Now, if you're telling me that a great experience didn't drive those three sales, I'm going to, I'm going to push back. For sure. Yeah. I still need a tie, by the way. I keep forgetting. I tried to buy the tie there. They were out of them. So there's uh, a customer uh, service friction. issue. Friction. Yep, friction. Exactly. All anyway, right. Let's answer another question. 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 You can quantify that. So yes, you absolutely can. Lay another one uh, on me. I'm rolling. And they did, they did ask me too how I heard of them. So I assume there's some attribution going on there. Okay. So this is a good one. I recently took over a CRO and have more experience with the sales team than the marketing folks. What's the best way to align the marketing team with our overall revenue goals? So this should be right up your alley. I mean, wrote a book about it, right? This goes <laughs> back to um, the alignment between sales and marketing and how do we actually achieve that? So, you know, the old story, sales is in one end of the building, marketing is in the other. Uh, uh, sales is complaining about the amount of leads they're getting and the quality of leads. Marketing is like those idiots over in sales can't close these sweet leads that we're generating. And at the end of the week, there's a fist fight in the parking lot. That's a very exaggerated story, but literally it's happening every day in American businesses, right? This siloed effect. So if I'm a comfortable with sales and I'm not as comfortable with marketing, the first thing I need to do is to bring the marketing team in and I need my champion. I need my lieutenant in this department, right? Someone who's going to lead the lead generation uh, charge. And what I want to do is I want to integrate that person with my senior salespeople so that they could constantly be communicating. Here's the challenge. When sales does not communicate with marketing, you have that disjointed uh, uh, experience, which we just talked about uh, quite a bit. So having these champions, I'm going to lead the, sale, the lead gen and you're going to close the leads that we generate is step one. Step two is I need a feedback loop, right? So once a week, marketing should be asking sales, what challenges did you have this week? What can I do to help you? What materials can I provide? What automation can I create? What um, uh, offers can I extend? What can I do to help you? And then subsequently, the service level agreement in sales is, hey, if you do all these things, we're going to close 40% of the leads that you give us. That's the deal, right? Now we have something to talk about. It's Equal footing, marketing and sales both have equal skin in the game, right? There's service level agreements going back and forth between those two groups. But I even said two groups there, and it can't be that way. It has to be that everybody in the new CRO's revenue department is pulling on the rope in the same direction. That means common bonuses for hitting numbers. If I'm not so familiar with marketing, I'm going to give those guys bonuses for hitting our revenue numbers. And I'm going to give the sales guys bonuses for uh, for the entire department, but the sales guys are even going to get the bonuses for website traffic increases and conversion rates. Because remember, the salespeople have the uh, local information we need. That's where the rubber meets the road. They're having conversations with prospects and clients all day. They could easily say to the marketing team, these are the things that people are talking about. Let's create content around that. Let's create landing pages around that. Let's search engine optimize for these phrases that people are saying so that it drives more traffic traffic, more conversions, bigger database, nurturing generates sales opportunities, and the sales team gets to close them. 
And then finally, my last thing is once again about compensation. Salespeople are typically compensated with a small base salary and a large commission on what they sell. But if the marketing team and the sales team are all in one department, we need a creative compensation schedule, aka shared bonuses for if, it, if we're hitting common metrics. Now the CRO, they don't have to be so schooled in marketing. They simply have to drive behavior and let the experts that they hire do the jobs they were hired for. Does that make sense, Mike? I think it makes a lot of sense for sure. Now, what I just said makes a ton of CEOs uncomfortable, and that's the rub. Yeah, you mentioned something that I think we ought to talk about. In fact, um, you know, it was something we had planned to talk about in a little more detail. So why don't we get into it? You mentioned something called a service level agreement between marketing and sales. And maybe some of the people watching or listening don't know exactly what that is, or they've heard of it, but they don't know the details behind it. You want to talk about that a little bit, or you want to kick that off and I can add a, a little bit to that? Well, they're pretty simple, but you're right. It's not a commonly used technique in business, right? Service level agreements are simply people horse trading. And what do I mean by that? If I'm the chief revenue officer, I have a lot of metrics that I have to watch out for in order to make the engine, the, the trains run on time, right? I got to watch website traffic. I have to watch my database. I have to watch my MQLs or conversions into that database. I have to watch my transition from MQL to SQL. I have to watch the sales opportunities and I have to make sure that those sales opportunities turn into revenue. So I have different people working on different things. So if we divide it into two basic, uh, sorry, three basic categories, we have sales, we have marketing and we have customer service, right? Customer service folks have to be part of the revenue team also because they're touching the clients and have the ability to sell. So we say, hey, Marketing folks, we need more leads. Okay, the marketing folks say, well, based upon where we are and the resources we have, we think we could generate 100 qualified sales opportunities a month. Great. Now the marketing people say, damn, that's going to be a lot of work. All right, sales folks, in consideration of us generating those 100 leads, you have to make sure that you respond to each one of those leads within 24 hours and you close 33% of them. If you agree to do that, then we'll agree to work our butts off to really generate those leads. What do you say? And customer service jumps in and says, hey, if you give me three specials on our products or services each month and promote them, we promise that every single customer service person will mention that to 80% of our clients each month to drive X amount of revenue. So these are just horse trading, little agreements that we're making inside the department or department to department about what we're agreeing to with the concept being that the service level agreements when correct will all roll up to revenue. Does that make sense? That makes a ton of sense. And those are all really good basic examples of what could be in service level agreements. Some companies take it much further than that. Uh, like I've, I've seen some service level agreements that we've helped clients with where the leads have a specific value. So if you think about it, uh, if the, I'll use some round numbers just for the sake of the conversation. So if the company generates $100,000 in revenue in a month and there are 100 leads that contribute to that $100,000, then each lead is worth $1,000. Eric, keep me honest on my math here, okay? I think they're worth $10. Seriously? Uh, 10 times 100 would be a, a 100,000, right? $10? No, no, no. 100 times 1,000 is 100,000, right? You got it. I was right. Yes. 
Okay. So you want a marketing the, plan? I'm your man. You want me to do? Yeah, math yeah, yeah. Well, neither of us are math majors, so <laughs> bear with us on this. But you'll get the point pretty quickly. All leads are not created equal, right? If oh, someone fills out a form for a white paper, that obviously is not as good a lead as someone that asks to talk to a sales rep via the chat feature on your website, right? If someone wants to talk to sales, there's a pretty good chance that they're a little more farther along their buyer journey than someone that's just doing some research. So the same would uphold uh, if someone comes to a webinar. There's a pretty good chance that someone who's spending an hour with you, listening to you talk about whatever is a little more along in their buyer journey than someone that's just downloading something for an email address. So you can actually go back and attribute revenue to the marketing tactic that generated the lead and attribute a value to that. So where I'm going with this real quickly then to make it simple, the, the, uh, the white paper download might be worth $10. The webinar registrant might be worth $50. The chat conversion might be worth $100 based on how likely they are to close. And you would have to use historical data to come up with these numbers. You can then say, in terms of your service level agreement, marketing has to generate $10,000 worth of value. How they do it is up to them. The point that, that this uncovers is, obviously, if they're smart, they're gonna try to generate more chat conversions because they only need, again, here comes the math, they only need 10 of those, <laughs> right? They only need 10 of those as opposed to 50 webinar leads or 100 white paper conversion leads, right? So it doesn't really matter to sales where the value comes from. And this gets marketing thinking a little bit differently about how they're allocating their resources and the kinds of programs they're rolling out. So Eric gave you a very simple version of an SLA that you could put in. Mine is a little more complicated. Forgive me on the math. If you wanna go through it in more detail, I'm happy to you know, email me and I'll, I'll help you with it offline. But those are all really important ways to get these two different teams completely aligned. And you can absolutely bring the customer service team in there too. Maybe it's a retention bogey, right? Because the more people they keep, the less marketing needs to generate and the less sales needs to close. So, you know, what is the retention number that client services needs to add to uh, allow the company to hit its revenue number? So service level agreements and shared goals are really important and the the formal document the formal agreement that everyone signs is very symbolic in terms of pulling these these uh three pretty disparate groups together and i think it's an important takeaway from today's session anything you want to add eric no perfectly explained mike okay let's do another question uh because these these are good um and they're fun yeah so um and this is a little bit related to what we talked about earlier but we didn't really wrap it up with a bow so this will give us a chance to do that I'm in the marketing department and I noticed our close rate on qualified sales opportunities is low. How can I help the sales team improve that? So Eric, I know you have a couple of very practical examples of how marketing can immediately help sales reps close uh, deals at a higher clip. Well, let me back up a little bit because I think we have to have common denominator here of what is close rate. Some people calculate close rate from marketing lead to close deals. I personally don't feel that that's correct because it's not sales's job to generate the leads. It's marketing's job. Sales has to close the leads. So I think a more accurate close rate 
is from a qualified sales opportunity that I actually pitched, whether that be proposal or contract or agreement, to how many of those close. So let's start by using that as our common definition, right? So close rate is how every 10 people I pitched, whether that be agreement, proposal, uh, recommendations, whatever, how many of those close? So let's start there. A good B2B close rate is somewhere between 33 and 50%. That's when you're killing it, right? You're closing all the deals that come your way. So what leads to a closed deal? The first thing is, is that you've knocked out the competition because if they're looking at a variety of options, your option has to stand out as the obvious choice or they're not going to sign your agreement. So when I go back to the marketing team, I go, guys, guys, give me some stories that are unique to our company and interesting enough that someone would tell their buddy. That's what we call being remarkable. And if the marketing department isn't doing a good job on messaging, then they're slowing it down because Mike, Given three companies that all look exactly the same, which one do you buy from? Well, you probably want me to say the cheapest, but I'm I'm taking the middle choice because I don't want to be considered the cheap guy and I don't want to be the, the uh, frivolous guy taking the most expensive option. Can we count on that behavior consistently? Yes, we can. No, we can't. Most, oh. people, most people would take the cheapest one because oh, okay. if okay. all the companies look exactly the same, I might as well spend the least amount of money. I'm not getting anything remarkable or differentiated here whatsoever. Hey, that does make sense, right? Number one, have marketing help you with storytelling. And that storytelling should be reflected on the website, in the nurture campaigns mid-journey, and through the sales process as we emphasize that as why they should do business with us. So right away, a little bit of support from marketing from a storytelling and differentiating point of view will start to knock out some of the competition. Secondly, I mentioned this earlier, right? That people that are in the sales mode, they're ready to buy, but they're not quite ready to sign their name. They have a lot of questions. They have a lot of concerns. They have a lot of things that need to be addressed. Let's get all of those captured into a document and start to create content that answers those questions in advance. Because if we can nip that in the bud and all these questions are answered, once again, our company is the obvious choice to do business with. That also takes away fear because they've given me the answers by being transparent in the sales process. And it makes me, once again, feel that emotional connection that you mentioned earlier, Mike. I love these guys. Look how great they are. Let's go back to the suit example. I was in and out in 20 minutes with a brand new suit and it got shipped to my house three days later, okay? I'm not saying that that's super remarkable, but based on my experience with other apparel companies, that is far and above a great experience. I'm never out in 20 minutes and I'm certainly not getting it two, three days later. Now, I can get some of those components like two to three days later, but I'd have to buy it on Amazon and nobody helped me and nobody measured me and nobody gave me advice. And they said, hey, Eric, you don't look good in that one. You look much better in this one. So that's something I got, but not all of it. Also, I can go to a custom tailor, but then I'm spending $2,000 for my custom suit, not $200. So there's the 10X advantage that this company has from a pricing perspective. So once again, if I understand that the experience is remarkable and marketing can help me with that, once again, it helps sales. So those are just two concepts. Mike, why don't you take a third or a fourth? Well, it's interesting. You're usually the sales guy and you're rattling off marketing things that can help cl the close rate. I'm going to handle some sales things that can help the close rate. So we see this very frequently. And this does get back to helping people feel safe. How many of our clients have presented super long contracts at the very end of the sales process where 
I love you guys. I want to hire you. I'm super excited about getting started. Uh, everything's approved here. Let me take a look at your agreement. Wait a minute. This is 20 pages long and I don't, I'm the business guy. I don't understand a lot of what's in here. I can't sign this because I could be literally like agreeing to give you my company if something goes wrong. I got to get legal involved. How many of you who are listening to this have had deals get held up in legal? Two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, sometimes longer while the lawyers do their worst to redline contracts and prove their value. Is that super important to you in your business? So the first thing I'm going to say is, are those legal contracts critical to what you do you know, negotiate some straight business terms put it in english and get everybody to agree that this is what i'm going to do and this is what you're going to do and if we both do what we agree to we're all going to get along famously you don't need a lawyer to negotiate a contract in most of these scenarios so mike i gotta tell you a story about bob doherty rest in peace he was my second landlord my first landlord happened to be an attorney. So when he sent me the lease, it was about eight inches thick and I required my own attorney to review it. So when I went to uh, rent my second office, I met Bob Doherty, old fella, super nice, really just reasonable guy. So I said, Bob, I like your office, I'm gonna take it. He says, great, let me give you a copy of our lease. Mike, it was three pages. So I said to Bob Doherty, hey, I don't understand. In my first office, it was 80 pages and yours is three. He said, look, it's the simple outline of what we talked about. If you're gonna screw me, you're gonna screw me no matter how many papers in the deal. Look it over, sign it, give me a deposit check, you can move in tomorrow. And I'll never forget that because even if he did it instinctively, he took away the friction and the cost to have a legal person review it. And you know what? He earned my trust right there on the spot in that meeting. And I was doing everything I could to be a great tenant for that. Where the guy who had the 80 page thing, uh, probably didn't have the same posture. So it's a great, great example. Um, uh, you had another one I think you were going to mention. Yes, I did. So here's one more, and we've seen this lots of times too. And no offense, Eric, but I wish you would stop using the word pitch because we don't pitch, we guide, right? Pitch insinuates, I'm trying to get this ball past you, right? And we're really guiding somebody. So in the final presentation that every company uses to get the final approval on their project, on their sale, we've seen so many companies who spend 80% of the time talking about themselves. And honestly, that's not what people wanna hear at the last stage of this, in some cases could be super long experience. They wanna hear how you're gonna help them. I think, Eric, didn't we work with a client where they had a, oh. 50-page presentation, and 20. the last slide was, yeah. we can save you a million dollars. And you yep, said, what exactly are you doing? What Put this Thanks. slide at the front and tell them you're going to save them a million dollars and then spend the rest of the time talking about how you're going to do it. They don't need to know about you. They don't need to know how long you've been in business. They don't need to know about your people, your culture. Oh, they on, already on, know Mike. all that hold stuff. On, hold on. I think that those are important validation points, right? If given two companies, one that started yesterday and one that's been around 30 years, the 30 years has the experience, they have the advantage and so forth. So I'm not saying to eliminate it, but that's all at the end, right? In fact, I would think that our uh, recommendations deck that we use to show our clients is a great example. We spend out of an hour meeting, 50 minutes going through that company, its scenario, its goals, its objectives, how we're going to achieve them. 
And then at the end, we say, and by the way, these last couple of slides are about us. I'm going to give them, give you the slides, look at them at your leisure, but this meeting is supposed to be about you, not about us. And I think people really appreciate to not hear, well, we were founded in 1983, we have 42 employees and blah, blah, blah. That information is there. We just don't have to expound upon it because the emphasis or the weighting of the uh, recommendations, the proposal, the agreement should be about the client. You're absolutely right. Uh, I personally think that Buyers today are much more educated than they were because of the research they could do on the internet. They're never reaching out to you unless they know the factors like how long you've been around and what right. ownership looks like and about the team. Right. But right. once again, if we don't stand in the shoes and plot that journey, we don't think about it. Well, they've been to our website. They've seen all that stuff. Let's really minimize that part of our conversation. Yeah, that's all I'm saying is I think by the time you're in the you're at the one yard line and you're trying to push the ball over. They already know about your company. They already know how long you've been in business. You know, you don't have to spend any time talking about that at the end of the process. It's really about how are we going to help you get to your goals? And here are the last little bits of information that you need to know. So we just have a couple of minutes left. Uh, we'll try to get done as close to five o'clock as possible. But I had a great question. It's not something we've talked about and it's not something we talk about frequently. So I wanted to try to get to that. Um, this uh, question says, I'm also a CRO at a software company, and I want to know whose responsibility is it to maintain our technology, specifically marketing and CRM tools? Is it someone in marketing or is it someone in sales? You got an answer for that, Eric? That is a really good question. You're right. We don't talk about it a lot. So I'm going to go with I'm the CRO. I have a revenue department that has some marketing people and some salespeople. And in my 2022 budget, I'm putting in a sales and marketing operations position. And I'm going to cordon that specific topic off to someone who's a real tech head who loves working in technology and not a part-time job of one of my salespeople or one of my marketing people. And the reason I say that is because technology is really become such an important component to the sales and marketing program, right? We can't do it manually anymore. It'll cost too much. It'll take too, too much time. We need to really devote our time to that. And this question brings up, how much am I willing to show my devotion to technology? And if I carve out a person that's only supporting my Salesforce instance, my HubSpot instance, I'm making sure that I have seamless integration, I'm building out new workflows and all that kind of like stuff that goes with technology is really assigned to one specific technology lead. I think that's the way I would go. Now, if I can't afford that position because I'm a smaller company, then I might share that job, right? I might share that job amongst IT and my sales and marketing team, right? Uh, I don't have the budget for that. Then I got to have a super user for every one of my software tools. Maybe my Salesforce super user is in the sales team and my uh, HubSpot super user is in my marketing team. So I think there's a lot of ways to skin that cat, but a topic that doesn't come up too often. You're right. Yeah. I mean, it's a brand new category actually called revenue operations. If you Google it or RevOps, sometimes it's referred to. It's actually an up and coming field and a new department or not department necessarily, but a new role in many companies simply because of the tech stacks. They're extensive. They are uh, heavily invested in by, by the business. They require oversight. Um, they require ongoing maintenance. They require customization or configuration in some cases. And you really need somebody who understands the technology and is able to marry the requirements of the company to the technology. So 
I think our guidance is pretty solid. If you can afford a RevOps person, you're gonna get a lot of value out of your technology. You're gonna push it to do things that will help the company improve its revenue position. And if you can't afford that, I don't think it matters whether they're in sales or marketing. You're gonna need somebody on one of those teams who is able to do a lot of that work on their own. Another option is to potentially look to find uh, an outsourced company, uh, like an, an agency with a technical bent that can also do some of that. We, we, do, we do RevOps services for a lot of our clients. This isn't a sales pitch, but if you can't afford to hire somebody, you can find an agency that is equipped to do those kinds of things for you. But it's an, it's an under-discussed topic and I do think it's one that is critical to helping companies get to where they want to be from a revenue perspective. Anything sure, we else want to talk add? about the four basic components, right? Strategy, tactics, campaigns, and technology. Right. I mean, I think, you know, Eric's comment about technology could not be more on point. It, it's literally, I think it's probably impossible to drive revenue in a sustained way without technology. And I'm talking about marketing sales and customer service. You just need to have the ability to automate certain tasks and track uh, the performance of your programs and attribute revenue back to certain things to make good, smart decisions going forward. So again, if you haven't come to that conclusion, that might be something you want to look at. There's a ton, there's tons of articles about RevOps um, and marketing and sales technology that you can take a look at. Well, at Mike, if you don't invest in technology, your competitors are, so you've got to keep up. Well, that's true. It is something that eventually is going to catch up with you in one way or another, for sure. Um, great. Let's uh, wrap up. This was a really good show. I feel like we did a much better job today with episode two than we did with episode one. So I'm happy about that. I appreciate everybody who joined us. Again, you can check out the show uh, on YouTube, uh, on the Square Two website. If you go to our website, there's a button at the bottom in the footer called What's Wrong With Revenue, where you can actually submit questions to the show and watch uh, old shows. And you can find the podcast version of the show where you love streaming podcasts on many of the different platforms. Next week, we're going to talk about what's wrong with revenue. There's no connection between expected results and investment requirements. And we see this all the time. I want a thousand leads, but I only have a thousand dollars to invest in marketing a month. Well, probably not happening. So talk to you all then. Thanks for joining and um, see you around. Thanks. Bye-bye.